0: Welcome back to the Do More Good Podcast. It is now 2024. Happy New Year. We hope all of the people who listen to this, including James's mum, are well-rested and raring to go for what plans to be an exciting year ahead. James and I have had a bit of time off over Christmas to spend some time with our families but we are back excited and raring to go for 2024 where we have some fantastic guests and opportunities lined up. Over the coming weeks you will hear a selection of interviews that we recorded late in 2023. There's some absolute gems in there and some brilliant and amazing insight from people doing more good. So we're pleased to be back. We hope you are rested and raring to go and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Enjoy. Can I just start? Yeah. Cool. You're listening to the Do More Good
1: podcast. The Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Do More Good podcast. We're in Nordwijk. All the way from Nordwijk. All the way from Nordwijk. How do I pronounce it? I I don't know.
2: (laughs) We are in Nordwijk for the 2023 International Fundraising Congress, and this is the Do More Good podcast the do more good podcast thanks for listening (laughs) brilliant thank you very much so kenneth and i flashed our fancy access all areas passes and snuck backstage before things begin today Uh, we're lucky enough to be in the press room for a conversation between two big hitters here at ifc We've got Bill Tolliver, who brought 30 years of experience of strategy and communications, two decades worth of leadership, branding and communications, a list of Fortune 500 clients, his own social enterprise, as well as his work with organisations such as UNICEF and the World Food Programme, and combined all of this into his position of Chair of the Resource Alliance Board of Directors. And he'll be talking to the Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment, an academic dean for the faculty engagement at Harvard Kennedy School, a faculty dean at Harvard College, a professor at Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the author of numerous books and articles, one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2013, with research positions from Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley and Maryland. And those are just the accolades we could squeeze in before they begin. It's the keynote speaker, for IFC twenty twenty three. Erica yeah, yeah. You're okay with it in shot like you know it's 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 what we're doing, so you forgot plans.
3: Okay. I'll start but can I yeah. should I introduce Erica?
2: Rolling, I'm just gonna
3: give another clap for sync. Okay. okay. Uh I'm Bill Tolliver and I'm with the Resource Alliance and I am very privileged to be sitting in conversation with a person who may be the least popular speaker that we've ever had at the IFC. And I say least popular because there are many governments around the world who prohibit Erica Chenoweth, our guests, from traveling to their country. In fact, the government of Iran just had a newscast in which they were a pre-featured person speaking about the issue of how dangerous their ideas are. And so I'm very happy to welcome Erica to IFC. Thank you. My Glad pleasure.
1: to
3: be here. Erica, you watch the news, especially even the news this week, and you find yourself maybe developing a sense of learned hopelessness. You get a sense that we're at a real turning point in human history. And you can almost touch the positive potential in which people who have been, you know, relegated to the sidelines of life for history actually have a chance for true equality and true connection. We have a chance for true democracy, for true freedom. And yet, we also see an incredible potential for a backward slide, perhaps a backward slide that lasts long enough that we can ill afford it. We may not survive this next backward slide. Why in the heck should we have hope?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think there's a, a scholar named Asaf Bayat who said that All revolutions require hope, create hope, and betray hope. Hope is a really important thing. Emotions are part of what makes us human and part of what mobilizes us or demobilizes us. What social scientists have found is that there are such things as mobilizing emotions, (laughs) of which hope is one, and demobilizing emotions, of which hopelessness, fear, and a lack of efficacy are some so what we need is hope and we need outrage at the same time hope and outrage together are the most powerful combination (laughs) of uh emotions that that we know of and the ones that actually demobilize us or demotivate us are fear and and hopelessness so we should aim for being aware being upset about the way things are going but we also have to hold on to this idea that it's up to us and there are things we can do about it. Otherwise, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
3: So let's talk about what are those things we can do about it. I mean, if I think about it right now, well, I was even in a conversation with a bunch of my colleagues yesterday, and boy, people were saying, it seems like it takes so much to reach a tipping point. And yet, in my conversations with you, while it takes a lot of effort, it actually doesn't take that much to reach a tipping point. I wonder if you might be able to speak to that.
1: Yeah, so th- there's a hot debate, as you might guess, about what the sort of critical mass or critical thresholds might be uh, for inducing major societal or systemic change. What we know is that it's somewhere between 35 and 25%, <laughs> depending on who's doing the model, what kind of model it is, and what data it's based on. My own research in the past has focused on the lower end of the spectrum. In 2013, I coined kind of a phrase called the three and a half percent rule. And the idea there was just that there had been no mass mobilizations against governments in the 20th century that had failed after mobilizing three and a half percent of the population. That sounds like a very small number, but in absolute terms, it's a large number United States, this would be 11 and a half million people today. We have scarcely ever seen a mobilization of that size in the US. So it's a, it's a large number, but it isn't as large as a lot of people think, right? A lot of people think you have to have an overwhelming majority of people either already on your side or willing to put their feet to the pavement in order to make change. What happens is that there are sort of cascade effects when a smaller but very committed group engage in sustained mobilization that can be enough to begin to shift power relations in a society. So on the, on the sort of 25% end of the spectrum, this is from a, a study by a sociologist named Damon Centola. And what he was doing is trying to look at, if you're trying to change a system, so not just change a government, which is what my uh, the 3.5% rule refers to. If you're trying to change a system, and that requires people to change the way they relate to one another, the way they behave toward one another, and the way people even think about the world that they're in, how would you do that and And what he found through computational modeling is that after about twenty five percent of the population in his study adopted the new way of the sort of new practices, that created sufficient cascading effects to change the whole system. So I think whether you're on the three and a half percent rule side or you're up to the twenty five percent rule side, the main takeaway is that like you say, there are significant barriers to getting uh, huge numbers of people to engage in costly action one way or the other, but it doesn't have to be a majority in order to even create the most substantial types of systemic change. It just has to be, like Margaret Mead said, a small group of committed people. That's the only people who've ever changed the world, right? Mm -hmm. And that's still true.
3: The theme of IFC, of which you're going to be the keynote, is Unite. And when I hear your statistics, 3.5% to 25%, I can look at almost any country and say, well, the progressive category tends to be more than 25%. Seems like if they just united, we would start to see this transformational change. How do you see the construct of Unite? What's what's required of us to come together?
1: Yeah, so... People who want to see kind of progressive change in the world constitute a majority in almost every sector and every domain. So on climate, on you know inequality, on poverty, on peace, on democracy. People who believe in those things are the overwhelming majority of any society and the world as a whole. The problem is we don't know how to act like a majority. So the key question there is, Uh, How do you find those common things that we all agree upon and find ways to cooperate and collaborate and act like a majority? The reason this is so important is because the forces that would prevent these changes do know how to cooperate and collaborate and do on a regular basis. And what they do is they use divide and rule. So they're sort of radicalizing together and the sort of pro-democracy progressive majority is deeply fragmented. So there's no way to sort of actively cooperate in order to counter that mobilization on, for lack of a better term, a catch-all would be the right, (laughs) you know. So basically, what is involved in uniting is finding shared purpose, understanding a shared peril, understanding... The self efficacy that is true. That is to say, like, there are catalytic events where the mindset changes from there's nothing I can do about this system to we have to do something about this system. We can do something about this system and we're going to do it together. And there's no going back from that. Like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We need more of those catalytic moments, those experiences that begin to change the mindset. And then the third thing is about building coalitions. So, There's an amazing saying by a civil rights activist named Bernice Johnson-Reagan who said, if you're comfortable with everyone in your coalition, it's not a coalition. And so we really do have to learn how to cooperate around shared goals without having people pass purity tests to be part of that coalition.
3: That is a powerful statement because it is one of those situations where we, in the progressive world, do not have to be divided to be conquered because we have divided ourselves into such vertical slivers. I, I was having a conversation with colleagues. I'm, I know the founder of Earth Day in 1973 when, long before smartphones and anything else, this massive global movement unfolded, in, including one of the most conservative semi-fascist presidents of the United States, Richard Nixon, created the Environmental Protection Agency. Yep. And then I'd come from Washington State in the United States, which is a about 7 million people. And there are 3,000 organizations just focused on the environment of Washington State. Yep. So we went from this massive global construct to such a small sliver of things. And this notion of a purity test where... I define myself by points of distinction from you instead of points of commonality. Exactly. Hmm. In a previous conversation that I was presenting yesterday, we were talking about we're in revolutionary times. Mm-hmm. This, this is time for a true revolution. Because from what I hear you speak, we're, we're not just in a situation where we're needing to change a government, but in a sense, we need humankind to adopt a new operating system that's not mm-hmm. a power system, but maybe a true ecosystem And everybody started saying, oh, when you say revolution, you mean bloodshed. But you have a very different perspective on that notion of revolution.
1: Yeah. So there are lots of different types of revolutions, the most effective of which, at least in the last 120 years, have been people power revolutions, which are, by definition, unarmed mass mobilizations, where civilians are using protests, boycotts, and other forms of nonviolent action to prosecute the conflict. There have been far more of those revolutions than there have been armed revolutions in the past 120 years. And in fact, the unarmed revolutions have won twice as often as the armed counterparts. They also are much more likely to result in more democratic and inclusive systems after they win. So, if you look around the world at where there are autocratic regimes today, chances are they came to power through a, a bloody revolution. <laughs> Whereas, if you look around the world at places that are still democratic, chances are those governments came into being because of a people power revolution. So that's just one note on that. The second thing I'll say is that I'm becoming increasingly of the mind that if it is armed struggle, if it is violent, it's actually not that revolutionary. I mean. Violence is the oldest thing uh, you know, we've got, and it's gotten us to where we are. Uh, so if you think about revolution as bringing about a system that's new through means that are new and novel, people power movements that are based in the, the legitimacy of the claim and the legitimacy of the means are much more novel <laughs> than you know, just resorting to, to tactics of brutality and coercion, which has almost never gotten us anywhere we want to be.
3: Mm -hmm. That sounds revolutionary. (laughs) Um, You know, as I hear you speak, it seems part of what you're saying is, how do you bring forth an almost warlike zeal, Mm -hmm. but to peace? In, In other words, what you're talking about is people rising up. You're talking about people coming together, but not to bear arms, but to bear witness, or to bear, to do something else. And I think one of the things that I find is that we get caught almost in these sort of academic popularity contest kinds of conversations that are self-defeating instead of saying, How do we bring warlike zeal mm-hmm. to this notion of this revolution of people-powered revolution? Can yeah. you am, am I just talking crazy there or is there something to that?
1: No, there's actually a whole kind of literature that adopts the nomenclature of, you know, strategic nonviolent conflict and some people call it unarmed insurrection, the idea being that they're trying to exactly perpetuate this idea that it is a functional alternative to violence, in the sense that if you are really resorting to people power techniques and the sort of theory of change that comes along with that, that you are being disciplined, you are building a strategy, you are planning and using different lines of effort. And it's it's almost like a nonviolent functional equivalent to militarized conflict. That is kind of a controversial approach because some people feel that in order for it to really be a truly liberatory and novel technique, we shouldn't need to kind of appropriate the language of militarism. But the point remains that there's often a total misunderstanding about the power and potential of people power because a lot of people think of nonviolence as being passive and sort of accepting suffering as like a mode of trying to convert the opponent or, you know, win the moral argument. And that's actually not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about people using a set of kind of tried and true techniques to change the balance of power so that they can issue forth a new type of system. That's fighting back. It's actually prosecuting a conflict. It is deeply contentious. It is upsetting entrenched power in ways that will elicit a violent reaction. And so the key test for these people power movements is when that violent reaction inevitably comes, are they able to stay playing on the chessboard? Or are they going to be pushed in to playing on the terms of the oppressor, which is violence back so I think I think that's the key test for many of these movements, and it's very difficult to do that, especially in the contemporary terrain where these governments that are autocracies are actively cooperating together to force movements into disarray and violence and losing the sort of high ground that they started from.
3: As long as people are fighting against one another, they're not fighting against the power system.
1: That's definitely true, and they're also, if they're trying to fight with the tools of the power system (laughs) they're deeply disadvantaged deeply disadvantaged
0: after five years of producing the do more good podcast we've decided to give our audience the chance to support the show with increasing costs of hosting james's obsession with perfection an exciting list of ideas and interviews, there is now the opportunity to join our Do More Good podcast community through our very own Patreon page. At www.patreon.com forward slash do more good pod from just £3 per month, you will get a personal thank you from us, access to our grown community and help us keep doing what we love and sharing the stories of people doing more good. We're immensely grateful for your support. Just head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash do more good pod. Thanks for listening.
3: So in a few hours, you're going to stand up in front of an audience of at least a thousand. And I don't know if we told you this, but it's going to be broadcast out to the world. You have a chance to stand up and influence an outcome here. If you were going to deliver a a true call to action to these thousands of people that you'll be speaking to, what would that call to action be?
1: I think the call to action would be to, first of all, recognize and acknowledge that we are in a deeply perilous terrain when it comes to the levels of cooperation that are taking place among autocratic regimes to subvert, prevent, and thwart people power movements around the world. People just really need to recognize that this has been working, that there's a reason that movements feel like it's really hard right now. It is really hard, and it's on purpose. The second thing is that we need to upgrade our playbook. And that means being much more savvy and smart about strategy. But it also means uniting and cooperating at levels we've n- literally never cooperated before among us. So as you said, like there are these sort of vertical silos, as I called it, kind of a deeply fragmented kind of progressive ecosystem, either within countries or across countries. And we basically need to cohere and cooperate and share know-how and skills and resources in ways that in in my lifetime have not. And then the the third thing I would say is that when it comes to the type of education that we all need to undertake, it should focus not on trying to make better arguments, but on uh, trying to really shift the balance of power. So a lot of people, I think, have resorted to a theory of change around how social movements work to where if you just get enough people in the streets (laughs) right, that the other side will see you have a good point and and you're going to start to change the majority opinion and you're going to influence the conversation. That's exactly what autocrats want us to think. It's a very ineffective mode. And so what I think needs to happen is people need to recognize that autocracies are any kind of oppressive system are always reliant on the cooperation, obedience and help of different pillars of support whether that's you know cultural authorities religious authorities economic and business elites state media civil servants and security forces and all of those people have their own interests in the perpetuation of, of the status quo or or not and so the key challenge for movements is to begin to divide those pillars so we need to unite so we can divide and rule them right? Right now, we're divided and ruled. We need to just flip that. <laughs> and we can't do it without coming together, as I said, and cooperating, and then focusing the efforts on dividing them specifically. That requires a, a whole level of strategy. It requires some kind of intelligence capability. You have to know like, who's benefiting and how they're benefiting and how they might be persuaded not to. And, and that's going to be a much more effective and safe way of proceeding as opposed to just getting a bunch of people in the streets and hoping for the best.
3: I have two more questions, if you don't mind it. We have been given a gift slash uh, albatross of smartphones, of Mm. digital media. And what stuns me is, if you look at the entire social impact sector, you might argue the biggest thing we've done with it is the Ice Bucket Challenge. I mean, when you think about it, that that's a hard thing to say. I mean, the Ice Bucket Challenge was successful, but it's hardly a massive leverage of the technology. And we still hearken back mm-hmm. to Solidarnosc, and we st- harken back to King, and we harken back to Mandela and Gandhi, and all these social movements that happened long before even there was mass communication of any kind. What is your perspective on digital and and the the, the role digital plays in social movement.
1: Yeah, I'm a a big skeptic. This is not a, a new thing that I'm saying, but I think that it's actually created incentives that have, on balance, harmed movements more than they've helped them. And I also think that one of the things that truly is unique to our time is how willingly we all voluntarily carry around surveillance devices in our pockets, right? So like, there, there, there were levels of government intrusion into people's private lives, certainly under many different totalitarian regimes. They had to re- use you know, human intelligence, and then they had to move to different surveillance techniques and such. But it was costly, you know, they had to actually put somebody in the house and put a bug in there. And it, it actually cost something and was risky to do. Now, we fully willingly walk around with geolocated devices. And <laughs> we, we put our faces up on there, on, on all of the social media, that the facial recognition technology is just right on top of it. So on balance, I actually think that over-reliance on digital activism at this point, or the digital representation of our activism has, has hurt us more than it's helped us. Especially because, as I said, it also provides these incentives to have like (laughs) Instagramable events or tactics, as opposed to thinking through what I just said, which is how do you actually shift the power relations? How do you uh, create defections? That's a separate question from does it look amazing on Instagram? You know, so I think that that this has been a problem. And again, shifting the mindset to real strategic thinking about upsetting power relations is important. Now, I'm not naive. We are always going to be appropriating whatever the existing technology is. It's going to be part of our lives and part of our movements. But one of the things I think we need to do is really think about how we can harness and leverage new technologies as they emerge. So you know, I'm very worried about AI, as is everyone, I, I think. But my research assistants in my lab a couple of weeks ago said that we should think about how AI can actually support social movements. And so I said, well, why don't we ask a chat GPT? In what ways can AI support social movements? And I'll tell you what, it came up with some great ideas. And they included things like exactly this. We can map power relations among the opponent's pillars of support. We can It can provide intelligence about who's getting money from whom or where their assets are and who's related to whom. And you can get very sophisticated power maps out of that kind of process. It talked about doing sentiment analysis and trying to understand kind of real-time reactions to different tactics that movements might adopt so that they can get the feedback and upgrade their strategy accordingly, among other things. I'm going to write about it. That is exciting um, and mortifying at the same it's time. It's exciting and mortifying, <laughs> and there, there may be all kinds of problematic elements of this, but it's just to say that for sure <laughs> AI has been already harnessed and will continue to be harnessed by our opponents to continue to divide us and that is a terrain on which you know, movements can reasonably play that won't undermine the sort of core ethos of people power, um, but can likewise deploy uh, certain types of capabilities that movements have found very difficult to do. Getting information on like a general's investments and familial relations and friendship ties can be very dangerous and very costly. So if a bot can do that... Great, I think that the more we think about orienting toward upgrading strategy using existing tools, rather than thinking of the tools as strategies themselves, Hmm. um, we'll be in a much better place.
3: Yeah, it is not just another thing to do; it's a different way to think. Yeah, about how to use these things. My last question, and I, to me, as I sit across, I'm sitting here thinking: if you're in a room where you're the smartest person, you're in the wrong room. I'm very much in the right room. I think (laughs) you might be in the wrong room, but. (laughs) What journey got you to this place? I mean, tell us a little bit about your life story that brought you to this place of making such a difference.
1: Yeah, so I really fell into this research area when I was finishing my doctorate. My doctorate was really on political violence, why why it's so common in democracies, where otherwise you should be able to express yourself in many other legal and nonviolent ways, And I was invited to a workshop that was called People, Power, and Pedagogy. And it was the idea of incorporating the literature and research on nonviolent resistance into courses for undergraduates on social movements or strategic studies. And I was very skeptical of it when I started encountering the material because I thought it was naive. I thought it didn't fully take into account difficult contexts or different difficult types of demands. And that is why I started studying revolutionary movements, because I wanted to know, in the hardest of cases, if you compare armed struggle against people power methods, which one was more successful. And that's when, in collecting the data, I and my co-author Maria Stefan at the time encountered this kind of stunning finding that it was the unarmed movements that had been more successful Nobody had really ever done a direct comparison. That's a curious thing, uh, in itself. We we'd studied things that explode for you know 500 years, but we but nobody had looked at this remarkable trend in the increase, especially since Gandhi, of the use of people power methods, uh, and the fact that they were really outperforming armed struggle. So I've been spending a lot of time over the past 15 years continuing to collect those data few years ago, we we started noticing this troubling decline in the success rates of these movements. I mean, right now we're back to where, basically we're back to 1930s levels Mm -hmm. of the effectiveness of of unarmed movements, Mm -hmm. which is not good. And part of it is because we are facing another wave of authoritarian backsliding that's akin to what the world was going through in the 1930s. So they've learned, and we haven't. And so, you know, a big part of my research now is trying to upgrade the playbook.
3: So I'll I'll have a quick follow up. So that is a powerful picture from PhD to today. Is there anything from birth to PhD? (laughs) I mean, you you started with a PhD in in violent conflict. It's like, how in the heck did we get from birth to that? Yeah. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was born in 1980. And in 1989 and 1990 is when, you know, I was sort of coming of age and looking at the newspapers and reading about what was going on in the world more.
3: I just want to say I had a beautiful mullet in 1980.
1: <laughs> so did I. <laughs> well, I, I, 1983. It took me a few years to grow hair, but I had a mullet too. But then, you know, what happened next is I started to pay a lot of attention to then the, the sort of violent spasms of the sort of post-Soviet collapse of regimes and uh, around Eastern Europe and, and Central Asia. And the, I was growing up in Dayton, Ohio, and in Dayton, they had the Dayton Peace Accords to sort of try to resolve the Bosnian War. And so I was reading the, the local paper and following the headlines very closely. And my mom got me this book called Zlata's Diary. It's a book by Zlata Filipovic, who herself was a Bosnian Serb living in the siege of Sarajevo. And we're exactly the same age. And some people called her the Anne Frank of Sarajevo. And I could just totally identify with her self, but couldn't believe that somebody who was my age and you know just living in a different part of the world was experiencing what she was experiencing. So from that time on, I really wanted to work in trying to understand violence, political violence, and try to help prevent it. So that's why I got into an undergraduate and then a PhD program where I was really focused on understanding political violence, and it's really been a, a key motivation of my life since I was a kid.
3: I will just say from the outside looking in, you're a gloriously, magnificently different kid <laughs> <laughs> than the north. Anybody? Thoughts? comments? Blown away, to be honest.
0: I think there was a couple of questions that came to mind as you were talking there was, just thinking of the audience and some of the models and things that you're talking about mm-hmm. are quite far-reaching Yeah. maybe the, the, the normal um, person. Is there any examples that you can give of other kind of movements that are taking place now that are doing some of the things mm-hmm. that you talk about? Because I think people can relate yeah. to, to other examples.
1: Right. You know, the, the scary thing is that there are lots of movements right now and they cannot do it. So, you know, if you think about Iran, mm. They have all, that movement had all the makings of kind of a second Iranian revolution. And the key thing they could not do is bring together the revolutionary coalition. They could not do it. Part of it is because the regime has so effectively divided the opposition. But part of it is because the opposition could not figure out how to collaborate and hold together. So there were multiple attempts to do this, and they all failed because they just were not able to overcome the divisions that have been so neatly placed within their movement. And so I think the the key takeaway there is that people, it's useful if people see the divisions for what they are, which is like the key barriers that were used as a way to fortify the regime. And that, you know, if movements are going to win, they have to basically reckon with those divisions. Now Sometimes what this means is that that is happening behind the scenes, that there's slow, painful work taking place. In fact, s- slow, painful work is often really required to overcome those divisions and begin to build the relationships and the trust that can then lead to an effective coalition. But this is very different from people hitting the streets in large numbers And thinking that that in itself is going to demonstrate the power of a coalition, it it definitely doesn't. So again, it's sort of like going from very visible, loud activity to more strategic, like behind the scenes, quiet, persuasion, negotiation, and organizing. And if we invest in that work, then when the time comes for there to be a mass mobilization, there will actually be like an organizational container that can carry that through and, by the way, consolidate the gains when they win. It's very hard to find movements that are doing this well right now around the world precisely because our opponents have figured out how to avoid it.
0: And just another question, if you don't mind. We're obviously here at IFC where there's a lot of people, a lot of change makers are going to be in the room when you talk later on. We're yeah. all here because we have a shared purpose, we have a shared mission, Mm -hmm. an audience, hopefully, that will be inspired by your talk to go home and think about what they've heard you speak about Mm -hmm. and and perhaps take that action to think more strategically about how we break down some of these constructs. Yeah. What piece of advice would you give to them about going away from from IFC and and how Mm -hmm. they can actually take action?
1: Yeah. I think I would just encourage people to think about if they find it helpful to be here among like-minded people... Imagine how helpful it would be for activists and organizers to be together doing similar types of things. And so if we're thinking about how to support movements for change, the number one thing that our research shows makes a difference is training and convenings, much more than any other kind of support. And the reason is because for most grassroots activists and organizers, they simply do not have time to do that type of work. And so if that is a way that, that funders can cooperate, for example, by hosting convenings or encouraging convenings and then getting the right people in the room, we can start to build this connective tissue um, that lets us act like a majority. It's gonna take some time to do that, but that just speaks to the necessity of doing it often and doing it over and over again in different countries, like within Iran, for example, right now, it's impossible to do that. You cannot have like a collective gathering of the people who literally need to be in the room together, Mm. but they can come somewhere else and do that. (laughs) Mm. And they can meet other activists from other countries that have had similar experiences and, and learn from them and just have a breathing room to build a strategy that might work and overcome some of these divisions, et cetera. So so I think like, the number one thing that people can do to have impact is to get people together and do it often and, and do it in a way that scales so that we start having a genuine kind of transnational movement of movements, which is, I think, what we need.
3: Listen, I, I am uh, humbled to be in your presence, and I'm very grateful that you're here with IFC, and I can't wait to see your keynote Thank and you. to follow you from this point forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. thanks very much. Thank you very much. two
2: hours. Yeah. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode, and you've made it this far after all, and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests,
0: then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at do more good. UK and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.